you. What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week we are saddling up and we are returning to the Rawhide Kid. Last year we did a two-parter on the early 2000s Max series, which was the controversial reintroduction of the character as a gay man and this year uh this week raver we are going to go ahead and discuss the follow-up to that series which in trade format the full title is rawhide kid the sensational seven this is the four issue uh, 2010 Rawhide Kid miniseries. It is written by Ron Zimmerman, who is the same writer from the comic that we read last year. But we have an artist change in Howard Chaikin. And rounding out the creators, we have Edgar Delgado as the colorist, letterer Jeff Eckleberry. And like last time, there's a whole different host of cover artists across these issues. We have John Cassidy, Dave Johnson, Mark Brooks, and Arthur Sudam on covers. And yeah, after a whole summer spent discussing X-Men, I wanted to specifically pick some non-superhero books for a change in genre So I figured what better time to return to our favorite little flaming sissy boy of a cowboy, the Rawhide Kid. You say that it's not a superhero book, but like, this one kind of is. It kind of is, that's fair, yeah. Like, they all have different abilities, they all team up, we even have like a lot of name dropping of classical superhero characters, one even appears... For a single bright, beautiful panel. That was a very, very good moment. Yeah, that's fair. Um, if nothing else, this is also at least also a Western. <laughs> so a little bit yes. of an added genre flair to it. And obviously, I love the Rawhide Kid. And I fully intend to <laughs> keep having us read Rawhide Kid every now and then. Um, let me... We'll cover the entire history of the character over the course of the podcast. Or at least the entire history of the character that is available in reprints, because most of those original issues are just lost to time and comic book bins, sadly. Uh, You never know. We have the Romnibus coming, so anything's possible. That was literally my thought, was to make a joke about why can I not have my rawhide omnibus, but maybe one day. Um, 
Sorry, go ahead. I never thought we would see uh the wrong the space knight omnibus. So like who knows? And even then, like all of um Daredevil by uh oh my god. All of Anasenti's Daredevil hasn't been collected physically, but it is all on Marvel Unlimited. They've digitized those issues anyway, so there's always like a chance that they'll just do it and not even announce it, and it'll just be there one day. That would be nice. Yeah. But listeners, this mini series is on Marvel Unlimited. So if you are interested, this one is one of the easier Rawhide comics to access. And as you said, this is kind of a superhero comic. We've got the whole getting the team together. The sensational seven of the subtitle is the group that Rawhide Kid puts together for this. And essentially the plot we have is that Christo Pike, the brother of Cisco Pike from the previous Max series, is an outlaw who has kidnapped uh, the lawmen Morgan and Wyatt Earp. Earp? I'll just say Earp. Um, and so Rawhide Kid assembles a team avenger style of seven including himself western heroes to go and beat up pike and rescue the erp brothers is the basic overarching gist of this comic and the sensational seven consists specifically of mostly other classic Marvel like 60s and 70s cowboy book stars. We have Kid Colt, Two-Gun Kid, Doc Holliday, Red Wolf, and his like sidekick Wolf Lobo. We have Annie Oakley, and we have Billy the Kid who... I was Googling and apparently is just straight up named and based on a real world outlaw. So apparently there's still holiday. Yeah. So we have like a mixture of honestly, even the real people are kind of folkloric, you know, but we have like a mixture of these like real world influences and the other really old school Marvel characters. There's actually a Doctor Who story about Doc Holliday from back in the 60s it's a musical oh depending on who you ask i actually haven't watched it depending on who you ask it's either great or terrible but it's a thing that exists a two-hour 1960s black and white british tv show about doc holiday meeting a time traveler that's a musical (laughs) yeah as we discovered last year i have no talent for doing a western accent And I think yours is much better than mine. So I think we'll try and have you do the specific line reads when we get to any part that we want to quote. Again, I think it's a hate crime if I do any of Rawhide's lines, but I'll I'll happily do everyone else. (laughs) Okay. Because Rawhide's not speaking in a Western accent. That's not the voice that you're meant to read here. It's not, and I don't know if I'm especially good at doing the voice either so i'll probably we can just sort of read his line straight but yeah 
issue number one. I figure we can more or less just sort of go issue by issue because these are silly comics that I love. A lot of the fun is just the ridiculous humor and we can just sort of talk about moments as they come narratively. But to start out with issue number one, the kickoff, what do you think of this cover by John Cassidy? It teases much better art than we get. Uh, it also, I would love to see Cassidy do a Western comic looking at this. Maybe he has, and it's I just haven't seen it, but like clearly his style is very well suited. Yeah, like the shadow play and the coloration and just like his style, I think is quite nice. It's just sort of a exactly what you would expect to kick this book off of just like Rawhide in the foreground with the sort of shadowed other six figures in the background for the rest of the Sensational Seven. And with regards to what you said about the art, I guess should we go ahead and just get some thoughts right off the bat on what we think of Howard Chaikin's style and how it works here? I think I only dislike it because when I think of Rawhide Kid, I'm thinking of Severin's art from the comic we read last year, and that's just better. Like, I don't think this is bad. It's just not as good as that was, so it doesn't come across very well. Yeah, I think you're right. John Severin's just kind of an impossible act to follow here because the sheer skill of what he was doing was top-notch and was perfect for the book. But beyond even that, there is also just sort of the legacy aspect to it of Severin being someone who had worked on the book decades prior, you know? So there's just, like, a sense of history in the character that was felt really present in reading a modern book that he was illustrating, too, because it sort of inherently called back to the roots in a way. And in terms of Chaikin's work in general, I've never been like a huge fan. I don't think he's like a poor artist skill-wise. You know, like, obviously he has artistic ability, but sort of the pro and con to it is he has a very specific aesthetic and I can respect that, and I can respect that his work doesn't really feel generic, you know? Like, it stands out quite a bit, especially regards to just, like, somehow style work. But it's also, I think, frequently a style that isn't especially exciting to look at. Like, the characters have a good range in expression and movement and I think he does a pretty good job here of just like laying out the locales getting the feeling of the setting and such like there are definitely successful aspects to this but it's just not as for lack of a better word, cool, you know, like it's just not as immediately exciting for me personally, at least. Yeah, like, as I said, I think it's fine. There's a lot of digital textures added and stuff like that. And like, like a big aspect of the art is the way it's colored, 
where a lot of the line art is like changed so it's not actually like black with colors underneath but like a lot of the times the line art is changed to be part of the colors and then you've got cases where there's parts of the background that are i think pretty clearly like put in like just done in the computer for some of the like textured sort of brick walls or stuff like that in some of the sequences and i think that it doesn't look bad but i'm just not quite that fond of that style like i'd almost prefer less detail if it felt more hand-drawn but this feels very like digital in a way that i don't think suits the material if you know what i mean yeah i think that's a great point like for this subject matter that sort of artistic choice just feels a little off and i think sort of prevents it from feeling as successful as it could be especially with regards to just like some of the backgrounds and like the backdrops of just like the world that they're in it just doesn't feel quite as like grounded and gritty as i wish it did and I think your point about textures especially is on point. But to jump to discussing the actual narrative here, issue one opens up in a similar way to how the prior volume opened with the obligatory panels of Rawhide Kid coming into a town on his horse, just the desert landscape, blue sky, and narrative captioning that's just sort of giving exactly what you would expect of hyping up rawhide kid as like this legendary hero and introducing the story with him riding into the town called tombstone where as i said before the law officials have been kidnapped so it's just sort of become a chaotic rumbling ground where there's all this fighting in the streets and Rawhide keeps having to tell everyone to knock it the fuck off and behave. Because if you don't already know from listening to our episodes last year, Rawhide Kid is a legend of the Wild West. He is the fastest shooter around and everyone respects his reputation. And basically he rides into town and the first member of the Sensational Seven that he's going to recruit that we meet is Annie Oakley, who he finds has locked herself up in the town prison in order to escape from basically just men chasing after her for unsavory reasons. And... When Rawhide sees her, he asks her what happened, and she asks, You mean other than being beaten, dragged through town, tied to a team of wild mustangs, had whiskey poured down my throat till I was unconscious, and half the guys in town chasing me around like a Thanksgiving turkey? And the immediate reply just tells you everything you need to know about this iteration of Rawhide Kid as a character. Because his response is, that sounds like a wonderful weekend to me, but I can see how it might not be your first choice. Because if there's one thing the Rawhide Kid is going to do, it is 
make sexual innuendos about being chased around by other men while standing around in his tightly cropped pants where I will say Chaikin frequently makes a point of highlighting his assets. What do you think of the humor in this book? Is it as successful for you as the prior series? Does it feel consistent? Yeah, I think that Zimmerman's writing on this is just about as good as the first series. Um, I think that, like, overall, I, in part because this is just more of the thing we got before, this feels a little less special than that first series. But, like, the scripting's fine. Yeah, it it, it all works. It's very similar sense of humor and very similar jokes as to the kind of thing we got last time. A lo- no, um, no George Bush, unfortunately. Just a lot more real people, because Annie Oakley was real, too. I'm now Googling everyone's name. <laughs> yeah. Morgan Earp, real. Annie Oakley was real. Doc Holliday was real. We already know Billy the Kid was real. Yeah. For the real world characters, I'm not sure how many of them had previously already been in Marvel books, you know? Because, like, a few of the characters, like Kid Colt, Two Gun Kid, I recognize those as just like old school Marvel characters. I'm not sure to what extent if ones like Annie Oakley and Billy the Kid also showed up in those old like 60s books as well, or if they're just sort of brought into this. But either way, the cast is basically just an homage and love letter to western media in general some more historic than others but essentially the meeting up with annie is a lot of chatting a lot of instantly selling just how gay the rawhide kid is every other line virtually is some sort of joke there's him like whipping out a hand fan to help with the dust in the west there's the exchange where Annie asks if he went all the way to Paris, Texas to learn how to fix hair. And he corrects her that it was Paris, France, and we, among other continental lifestyle pleasures. Just a lot of that. It's continuing that. Just either the humor is going to work for you or not. It works for me. But... A lot of the same, like we said, as the ethos of the previous Zimmerman written book. And as he's helping Annie Oakley get cleaned up, he basically asks her what happened to the town. And she gives him the lowdown on the Earp brothers being kidnapped. And there's a pretty direct reference to the last series in the discussion of the Pike brothers and how one of them was the antagonist last time. And Rawhide just does the gag of like listing down the entire family roster that he's tangled with. Christo's father, Crisco, his brother, Cisco, his uncle, Castro, his cousins, Cresco and Craspo. Just more of the Pike family and 
again, this being a Western, there are plenty of just like slight historical references. We get Annie referring to one man as the dirtiest, meanest, stone crazy, old cork popping, jug swilling drunkard this side of President Grant. And I kind of forgot to reply to it when you said it. But speaking of presidents, Bush, yeah. Is it fair to say that George W. Bush's absence is the most felt absence in this book other than Severin? Yeah. I wish Grant had shown up at some point and just looked like Bush for no reason. That would have been funny. (laughs) Just superimposing him over the old president gag. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just Bush, but like with a mustache. Yeah. But I don't know if Chaikin's art would have gotten that likeness across that well. Fair point. Yeah. We don't really get like, I guess we don't really get that sort of visual character gag in these pages in the same way that we did in Severin's work, really. Yeah, it's I like just because I don't think Chaikin's style is detailed in the same way. And like, he doesn't have, like, the same face thing that you get with some artists that we've complained about before, but he's got, like, I'd say maybe eight or nine different male faces, which, like, is pretty standard for most comic book artists, I think, but he's just not someone who I would normally have do, like, a likeness. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, like, speaking of the faces, with regards to the Sensational Seven, you know... Annie is clear to tell apart. Uh, Red Wolf is obvious. And then Rawhide Kid is easy to tell apart. And I'd say that Billy the Kid is characterized pretty uniquely. But then when you get to the second half of the team, there's absolutely, at least for me, sort of a little bit of difficulty in these pages of just like remembering which of the other free just miscellaneous white men is which the one with the mustache is holiday and then i couldn't tell you which one was two gun kid and which one was kid cult like weirdly the two who are hardest to distinguish are the like the marvel characters yeah who also have like a plot point of like fighting for annie's affections which is a little harder to follow like which one she's actually currently with when they're the two characters that I find are the least notably different. She's dating Holiday. Oh, right, right. Well, see, there's my thing. The miscellaneous white guys. I think it's Kid Colt who's into her. I think. Yeah. (laughs) But we get some frequent cuts throughout the story as the rawhide kid is assembling his team we also get cuts to uh pike's compound his base where he has the erp brothers imprisoned along with i don't think they ever name him or at least like not until the very end but just this drunk old man this argumentative rude old geezer who is just sort of always coaxing the brothers into fighting each other. And 
will become important for plot reveal information later, but is just constantly always calling them stupid and making insinuations using terms like sissy and such. And yeah, he just does that and just has his fun drinking all day and watching them fight. And beyond that, we get plenty of sequences of Pike and the rest of his men and just little humor scenes of him sort of lamenting how stupid all of his followers are. And the specific details of those scenes aren't really especially important. It's mostly just sort of bumbling around with the incompetent subordinates. But meanwhile, Rawhide Kid just sort of gets the town under control enough to get Annie out. He beforehand though makes his way to some of the men that have been giving Annie shit and they call her a whore then call him a candy ass we get the return to the plot point from last time of Rawhide Kid not liking name calling due to his experiences as a child so we just get like a lot of one punch knockouts a lot of slapping lever and pulling his guns out and knocking everyone else's guns out of their hands before they can even draw a lot of that sort of stuff. Just again, reiterating how good Rawhide Kid is by having the occasional character who doesn't respect his reputation, just sort of do the whole what kind of sissy boy are you thing just for him to knock the shit out of them. And he and Annie get ready to ride out of town in order to pick up the rest of the team that they're going to use to help save the Earp brothers. And while they do that, someone has to stay behind in town to keep things under control and keep the residents from just beating the shit out of each other all day and the rawhide kid has sent a wire to a trusted friend of his who is going to act as the sheriff for a little while would you like to describe our glorious one page appearance here it's fucking ghost rider like, that really cool bit in that really bad Nick Cage Ghost Rider movie where it turns out that, like, the guy who always plays a guy from a Western was, like, the old West Ghost Rider, and he's riding around on a flaming horse with the hat and, like, the flaming skull still. Yeah, it's that guy. It looks fucking rad. It's a really great splash. Um, I want... Chaken to actually do a book about this ghostwriter because I think this ghostwriter looks great. <laughs> this is the best page. I was gonna say, yeah, like this is probably my favorite visual in the entire book. It is a little insane to me that he doesn't just send a ghostwriter to rescue the Earps, which like ghostwriter would rather do that anyway. If it's if he's characterized any way like ghostwriter normally is, he wants to go and punish bad people, <laughs> and he could do it by himself. That is fair, but it is also great as a one-page gag. 
I like that this this one feels like it's set in the like wild west of the Marvel universe, and it's not just like in part it's having these other Marvel characters showing up and like having the the larger world. You know, there's a lot more people involved in the story than there were in the first one, and I do like those aspects of it. Like between Ghost Rider and Kid Cole and Two Gun Kid, especially who was like the one other Marvel Western character I'd heard of before reading this. Oh, and Red Wolf, actually. I'd heard of Red Wolf because they gave him, like, a little push uh, right after Secret Wars. He was in some stuff and was, like, wound up in the present day for a while. Like, they tried to make Red Wolf a thing for, for a minute. Um, and I think that was a good decision. And this is cool. And as I said, this looks really badass. Yeah, that is a good point. Yeah, I think that while the previous series had sort of a legacy feeling for like the rawhide character and severin's involvement this mini series sort of feels like it has more of that legacy of like marvel westerns as a whole and just like actual marvel continuity with characters like this and some of her jokes that happen as it goes on I'm just looking at this Ghost Rider splash page still, and it's really great. I want to see Chris Bachalo's take on this character. Bachalo should just do a whole series of Western Ghost Rider. I think right now they've got Ben Percy writing Ghost Rider. I probably need to read that. But, like, if they want to bring back Marvel Western at any point, use Ghost Rider as the linchpin. Because, like, yeah, we know that there was a Western Ghost Rider. He's been in the things. You could do a comic about that character. And it's it just automatically looks so badass. Yeah. And honestly, like, both takes on Western Ghost Rider look great. Like, because we have, like, the type that's in this book where it's the sort of modern Ghost Rider, like, flaming skull thing. But even, like, the OG Marvel Ghost Rider of... Just like the guy and the all-white outfits where it's like, oh, an actual ghost sort of appearance is also really cool. And yeah, it's been it's been 13 years, but I would love to see another Zimmerman Rawhide Kid mini, maybe preferably with some ghost riders in it. Oh, um Zimmerman died last month. I also saw that while I was looking stuff up. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. That's sad. Uh, yeah, I... Yeah. I Complete coincidence that we're covering this now, but yeah, I was doing some Googling um, because I was, like, looking up the characters' names, and then I brought up Rawhide himself and saw that, so... Damn. Yeah. But uh, Marvel should use these characters again. Yeah. Um, they're sitting there, and they they would be the cool characters. Yeah, there is a lot of cool stuff going on here. I guess knowing that now, I'm all the gladder that we're covering this book now. Um, in light of that news that I did not know beforehand. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's essentially issue number one ends with the Rawhide Kid and Annie Oakley riding off while we have the badass Ghost Rider temporary mayor to keep things in check or temporary sheriff rather 
And we then move into issue number two with a cover by Dave Johnson. This is the most sort of comedic cover in the series. Like the rest of them could largely sort of belong to any Rawhide comic, but this is the one that I think sort of most immediately sells the fact that this is a humor book because we essentially have the like free horizontal sort of panels to the image with each one having a different just like cowboy dude in them the top two saying the smelly and the nasty and then the bottom panel is of rawhide kid himself and the text changed from brown to pink saying the fabulous it's homaging the good the bad and the ugly posters okay I got like the reference of the phrase, but I don't think I've seen like the actual posters. So I didn't recognize like the overall design being a reference to. Yeah, there's like a lot that have like the the horizontal sort of like showing each one of the characters with the good, the bad and the ugly next to them. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't recognize that. But In issue number two, we get Rawhide and Annie riding into the town of Deadwood, where they're going to pick up some of their next helpers on this mission, and this involves stopping at a brothel, and just lots of Rawhide Kid talking to, like, the madam and the prostitutes, and... All of the women want to fuck the rawhide kid because I assume he's the only man in this half of the country that bathes and respects women. So they all just keep making comments about wanting to give him boot knocking pleasure and asking if he's sure that he's well dressed. Like it was very sure. (laughs) He is very sure. He is very well dressed. Listeners, if you haven't listened to the prior Rawhide Kid episodes, out of all the euphemisms in these books, well-dressed is the most frequent, the tried and true. And, like, we get a line, I believe, of, like, one of the prostitutes being like, the Rawhide Kid in my brothel, it would be my honor. And he says... How sweet. Unfortunately, for a man of my libidinous appetites, your honor would be my horror. I promise it's nothing personal. And Rawhide recruits Kid Colt, who has been spending his time at the brothel for obvious reasons. And we also get some scenes of Doc Holliday, who has been gambling in town. And... By the end of issue, Rawhide has recruited both of these two men to the posse. And we also get the lawyer one is Two Gun Kid, right? Uh, Yeah, the one. Yes. Yeah, but lawyer is Two Gun Kid. And then Doc Holliday is the dentist. Yeah. Yeah, the dentist. And there's a scene where 
this group assembled so far is all in a bar and two gun kid in his sort of lawyer get up is talking about wanting to join in on the fight and kid colt basically says that the only way that he is going to come is if his shooting has improved at which point he says i've been practicing and kid colt throws a bottle up in the air for two gun kid to shoot at and we get the panel of like the blam blam of the gun and then the next panel is just two people in the bar falling to the ground as rawhide says nice shooting and one of the others points out that he shot everything but the bottle and rawhide just says they can always use a scatter shot and yeah that gets us five members of the way to our sensational seven we now have rawhide annie the lawyer, the dentist, and for Kid Colt, he's just, what should we call him? Just the dumb horn dog. That's his character, is just the dumb horn dog, really, who wants to go with Annie. Yeah. After this, they go out and recruit Red Wolf and his actual wolf, Lobo. The characters clearly have established history, like most of them do. Um, he's friendly with Rawhide Kid, refers to him as dances naked with glee. And what do you think of Red Wolf in this comic? Um, I think he's fine. I like how excited he is about killing white people. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. He's fun. Rawhide essentially recruits him by just promising him that he'll get to kill a lot of white people. And he agrees to come along. They establish him as, like, the most intelligent person in the group. Like, he's apparently studying uh, for Harvard, under Harvard, like, Harvard Law School and stuff like that. Like, clearly part of a humor is meant to be that the character who, you know, if you go by the sort of classic Western movie stereotypes would be the character who's, you know, Tonto is actually, like, the clever one in the group. Yeah. the most competent, except for Rawhide. Yeah, like, part of the thing with, like, bringing back a character like this is that one of, honestly, not even really one of, I think probably fair to say, like, the biggest downside, the worst aspect of a lot of the, like, 60s era Rawhide Kid comics and other sort of like contemporary to that western media is just how blatantly racist a lot of it is specifically with regards to the native american characters who are usually or at least frequently just sort of stereotypical antagonists and like depictions that sort of like played upon you know just like old sort of racist concepts of like the savage and things like that. Um, and yeah, it feels like there's a conscious effort here to have Red Wolf not just fall into that and be competent and one of the voices of reason and just sort of a cool addition to the group. Yeah. 
there's apparently been a bunch of different red walls. They're all like different people. Basically, every time he shows up. Okay. I honestly really know nothing about this specific character. You might know more than I do, given the Secret Wars stuff you mentioned. Well, I haven't read it, but apparently he's not even the 6161, even when he shows up after Secret Wars. He's the one from the 1872 universe, which is like a a Wild West version of the Marvel Universe where all the contemporary characters exist in the Western setting as well. God, that's weird. Why don't you just use the 616 version and do a time travel thing? That's what they normally do when they bring these Western characters into the superhero stuff. Huh. I'm kind of curious to see that. He meets Wilson Fisk and he's like, oh, I know you, but in Maya, if you're the mayor of, like, a town... And here you're the kingpin. That just feels odd. I don't know. (laughs) But can we get a time travel story where Rawhide Kid meets George W. Bush in the present and is like, wait a minute. I mean, I I, that's they have. If you do that, though, it's going to be ultimate Rawhide Kid. Can we get ultimate Rawhide Kid with the ultimates back? Yeah, yeah. He time travels and he meets the ultimates. I'm not aware of an Ultimate Universe Rawhide Kid yet, are you? There, there isn't one. Can that Although be Severin, my break into Marvel? Uh, Zimmerman did do a, a miniseries for the Ultimate Universe. Which one? It's called Ultimate Adventure. It's actually the only thing I've not read, so maybe there is a Rawhide Kid reference in it. But um, it's about like a joke Erat's version of Batman and Robin. Like, it's not even existing Marvel characters. It's entirely made-up new ones. It's very strange. You know, considering every other Ultimate Universe thing is, like, either we're doing this character but now, or we're doing this character but what if they were the worst? And then there's just this one miniseries that's here, I'm introducing some new ones. Well, now I am... Adding this to my queue in Marvel Unlimited, and we'll see <laughs> if we maybe get to that on the show at some point. I'm curious to see what this is like. Our second Ultimate comic is Ultimate Adventure, which again, it's the only one I haven't read, so I I do not know if it's good or not. I am very intrigued. I'm just like looking at the pages on the app, and I'm just like, I'm curious to see what this is. But I can't get... tell you, it's not relevant to the rest of the Ultimate Universe at all. These characters are never even mentioned again. I bet, yeah. But to get back to the actual comic at hand for this week, um, yes. that was more or less all to note for now for issue two. There's just some more brawling and such. But moving into the latter half with issue number three, What do you think of the Mark Brooks cover here? I think it looks like a Mark Brooks cover. Like, you can tell it's earlier days for him than, like, the stuff he's doing now for, like, Universe Big X-Men splashes. But it still looks like Mark Brooks, so it looks great. Yeah, it's quite nice drawing here. I like the sepia tones. That was a good coloring choice. They should do that more often for books like this. It feels very appropriate, yeah. And, like... I like the texture. I like the characters here. You know, it's just sort of a little 
cover pose rendition of half the cast, but it looks quite nice. It's very noticeable in this cover. It is, it is a thing throughout this book. The fact that Annie Oakley's running around in like a midriff revealing outfit is very strange for a Western book and doesn't really fit in. Like, that just doesn't make sense as a thing for her to be wearing. But, um, and, and so like that on this cover for me especially stands out, I think just because like she's wearing something that looks like a modern outfit and then the others are wearing something I'm like, yeah, that looks like a, a 50s cowboy movie. <laughs> I guess this might be a good opportunity to just sort of ask, what do you think of the way her character is handled here? Because... And by here, I mean just like the series in general, not specifically just this issue. But I feel like she's relatively flat. Like, I don't feel like she gets as much opportunity to just sort of be and seem like a badass so much as she's just so constantly lusted after. Yeah, I I would agree, especially since, like, she was a a real person like this. So... Her thing, and this is me just glancing over a Wikipedia page, but apparently she, like, was a good enough shot that she was in um, the Buffalo Bill, like, professional sort of rifle shooting show. So she's a woman who was badass enough that we still, like, remember her now, back then. But she is the least interesting of the characters who are in the book. Which is a strange choice to me. Yeah, I think it's... I think she's just not a priority. I think that because, like, just having the woman on the team, you know, let Severin do the jokes about, like, the horny guys, but then plays off of, you know, Rawhide's not horny for her, but he probably wouldn't mind sleeping with a couple of these guys. And, like, just doing that stuff is sort of the priority over like Annie getting to do anything cool but from what I can tell she actually was really cool yeah I think her character might be the most disappointing one here just because like I wish she got a little bit more time to sort of be depicted as a great shot in her own right and not just the sort of basis for sounding these jokes off but with that said issue number three basically opens with the introduction of billy the kid who as the final recruit to the sensational seven is by far the most revolting of all of them it like opens up with him hitting on a woman And the woman's husband telling him to back off and Billy being like, don't worry, I don't mess around with married women before shooting the guy in the chest and being like, I do mess around with widows. So basically the other sensational six recruit him after seeing him just commit cold blooded murder. And they're just like, we need all the guns we can get. We're going to use them and we're going to take them to jail after this. And his character is also like a launching pad for jokes. But in his case, it's basically that he is every type of bigoted necessary. 
and that like he is sexist he is racist he is homophobic he is just generally bumbling and stupid and arrogant and insults everyone else and so the running gag throughout is that doc holiday will like grab him by the head and lead him off panel for us to then get like the sound effects of him just like getting the shit beat out of him. Apparently Billy the Kid killed 21 people by the time he was shot and killed himself at the age of 21. My god. So this is just like a serial killer. Literally, yeah. Like I don't think if he's like I don't know if you would diagnose him the same way as you would a serial, classical serial killer, but like he killed a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, and quite an interesting choice of, again, like, a real-world figure to reference and throw in the comic to just have all the Western heroes, like, pick up and utilize this real-world serial killer. It's odd. I'm not necessarily, like, criticizing it. It's just like, huh, okay. Although I guess, like, he's certainly, like, effective enough in serving his role of just, like, we get the scenes of everyone in the Sensational Seven that is, you know, just, like, talking amongst themselves, sitting around the fire, yada yada, and just sort of, like, largely being a respectful to each other group, except for periodically, uh, Billy will interrupt with whatever insults for example calling the rawhide kid a sissy talking fruit pie and then he'll just sort of get the shit beat out of himself while everyone else just sort of smiles about it yeah he's here to get comically dragged off panel and like just have a bunch of sound effects in the background of him getting the shit kicked out of him i like how often two gun kid brings up having met the avengers that's a funny gag Yes, yeah, I definitely wanted to talk about that. Like, you mentioned earlier the sort of, like, Marvel stories where a Western character will be sort of brought forward, or I guess, like, the Avengers will go back in time, whichever way it went, and just sort of, like, these references to the different periods of Marvel characters meeting, and his gag here is sort of, like, the equivalent of... Monica Rambeau in Next Wave, wherein that she's just always like, I used to lead the Avengers. And here it's just like he'll periodically do the gag of just being like, that Captain America was a good man or whatever the hell. He spent like a lot of time in the present. Like, I think he was like one of the characters who stuck around like a surprisingly long time. I know he's in some of the Dan Slot She-Hulk run because she knows him from having been on the Avengers with him and there's like some t- uh, TVA like stuff that happens in that. Uh, so I've read him in that a bit. I haven't read any other stuff, but like if he's around long enough that like he's friends with She-Hulk, he's spent a while in the present. Yeah. We also get a brief night side chat with rawhide kid and two gun kid with two gun basically without saying the word gay just being like do i really come off gay and rawhide being like yeah 
but like a you, weekend in New Orleans, which like I haven't heard that one before, but there we go. Um, Rawhide Kid says the vest, the kerchief tied on the right side, and come on, the black leather mask is like a signpost. And when the two gun kid is like, oh, I gotta change my look, Rawhide's just like, no, if you like it, wear it. And we get the moment of Rawhide saying what makes a man tough is not being afraid of what anyone else thinks, standing your ground, being comfortable with who you are. If you can do that, then you're tough. And again, there's just sort of like this take on the characters, sort of like moral on masculinity and like healthy sense of self. And we then move into a flashback of the Rawhide Kid's time as a child with his mother and his very abusive father. And can we do a read through of this page where you're the dad and I'm the Rawhide Kid as a child? Okay. I said, shoot them bottles. You ain't nothing but a little sissy boy. Please, Papa, I don't want to shoot guns. I want to travel the world, read poetry, and study the arts. Poetry? The arts? Ain't never been a bot what couldn't shoot the eyes out of a penny. You just made me sick. Please, Daddy dearest, can't you love me even though I'm different? Even though I don't like guns? Even though my outfit casts more in this entire farm? I love you despite your grotesque appearance, nauseating body odor abysmal personal hygiene, degenerate alcoholism, wife-beating proclivities, sociopathic personality, illiteracy, and irrational violent child abuse. If I found out that any of them big words ain't compliments, by God, I'll sell you to the Apaches and pay him for every day to keep you alive, sissy boy. Now pick up that gun and shoot them bottles, Johnny Poem Head. My God. <laughs> What do you make of this scene? I think the, I love it. It's so fucking ridiculous, but I think it still works. I, I'm just gonna assume that this is at least partially filtered just, like, through Rawhide's, like, own perception of it. But I really like the gag of Kid Rawhide, like, listing all the things wrong with his dad, and it's just, like, degenerate alcoholism, sociopathic personality, Wife-beating proclivities, nauseating body odor. <laughs> yeah, like, my god. The wife-beating proclivities and the I want to travel the world, read poetry, and study the arts. Oh my god, it's great. But it basically just continues from there with Rawhide's mother trying to defend him a bit the father then doing literal wife beating, telling her not to talk back to him, and basically just more about Rawhide being a sissy and not being worth anything as long as he's this little artsy boy who can't shoot. And when the father and the mother walk away, we get the sequence of Rawhide as a kid shooting and actually being a perfect shot and 
then walking away from his home. And we cut back to the present fireside chat where he basically tells Two Gun Kid that he never went back to his home. He left to begin adventuring and training to become as good of a combatant as he could, as good of a shot as he could. And that he heard that his mother stepped on a rake in the backyard, braining herself, and that his father sold the farm and just became a wandering town drunk. And essentially just going back to the child abuse that the prior series talked a little bit about and just sort of fleshing that out some more and talking about basically just Rawhide sort of left and never gone back. And meanwhile, back to Pike's headquarters, we get the introduction of basically just the Masters of Evil, the Injustice League, the obligatory villainous countergroup of seven characters that Pike has recruited to help him fight off the Sensational Seven when they come there to fight, each one sort of being a mirror in one way or another of one of the Sensational Seven, just helping lead up to the big showdown that we're going to get in the final issue. And after just like some more gags, issue three basically just ends with the fully assembled Sensational Seven riding off to make their way to the showdown. So that brings us to issue four, the final issue of the series. And we have a cover by... Actually, we mentioned this artist last week. It's um off of Sudan, I want to say is how you say his last name. Oh, is he a horror artist? Is he did that... all the Marvel Zombie covers. Oh, that's who this is. Okay, now that you say that, yeah, that makes sense. I can see it. It didn't, Um, I didn't realize before, but yeah. Which is why this is so exceptional. I think this one looks fantastic. Yeah. Um, conceptually, it's just sort of like a, like a cowboy shoot off sort of thing. We get the between the legs shot classic. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite nicely done. And also just like the coloration, like the pop of just like the like dark shadows against like the bright yellow and orange of the sky and the ground. It's it's quite nice. Essentially, we just get some scenes of everybody planning for the fight, going over how it's going to go down. And we then quickly jump into the final standoff between the Sensational Seven and their villainous counterparts. I think the best of the villains is, I think his name is Dead Kid. He's the one that Billy the Kid goes up against, and he just straight up is a Western zombie. Yeah, yeah, I like the random zombie. Like, most of them are just, like, there's, like, one who's clearly some sort of Russian stereotype. Um, Oh, Wait, is he, he's, no, he's meant to be French. Okay, he's wearing a big furry hat, though. So I really feel like he should be Russian. And then there's, like, a ninja, and there's a zombie. 
And then the others are like very direct mirrors of the other character in that they are literally just like someone wearing basically the same outfit. Yeah, we get like Annie goes up against the obligatory only woman on the enemy side. Red Wolf goes up against a guy in like a bear motif. Rawhide's opponent is just a dude who has completely stolen his look, except he has his hat turned the other way and his shoes are white instead of black. He's Rawhide Kid if you ordered him from Wish. Yeah, the Rawhide Kid that I ordered, the Rawhide Kid when it arrived in the mail. (laughs) Exactly. And just, they have this like verbal standoff talking about each other's fashion and just like what expensive materials like their pants and their bandanas and everything are made of. And it's just them sort of like verbally sparring over textiles before Rawhide just ends it, shoots him dead before the other can even draw his gun and just finishes it off with a quip about wearing white after Labor Day. I mean, Rawhide's wearing a white hat, so, you know, he hasn't got a leg to stand on there. Yeah, he pulls it off better, though. He does, yeah. The, the like, slight redesign of the Rawhide Kid outfit to be like, what if we just sort of messed up the color blocking on this and made it look bad? When I think that the, the regular outfit is quite striking. And, and I mean, it is basically just the same as the classic design that's used in this and in the last miniseries. Just, like, taking that design, like, making it a little worse with a different shaped hat that looks worse and putting the armbands on the legs to just sort of break up the way that they break up the colors and stuff. And you're like, oh, wow, yeah, this is just, like, a bad knockoff version. I think that's pretty funny. Yeah. And And I like that the design that's bad on purpose is, like, yeah, that actually does feel like someone did a rawhide kid without, like, thinking about it. Yeah. I think the scene's pretty successful. I think the pacing of the comedy here is pretty good. It's like none of the gags last a particularly long time. It's like each joke takes just as long as it needs and the plot just sort of keeps moving on. Like in terms of the lesser character matchups, more or less everybody defeats their opponents in the course of like three panels. So it's a pretty fast final showdown, but I think that's fine. Like, it's largely a comedy book, and it just sort of lets everyone get a nice quip in and sort of plays into the non-seriousness of it more than trying to be, like, a really serious gunfight. Yeah, there's never any, like, none of the main characters ever feel like they're remotely in any danger. Like, that's just not what this comic is going for. Yeah. Once the seven bad guys are taken out, we're left just with Pike and his hostages. And we get the reveal that the drunken old man that Pike has been holding on to in the prison cell all this time is, in fact, Jimmy Bart, the rawhide kid's father. And yeah, just not shocking. Yeah, like, it was telegraphed um, earlier quite clearly in the book, but just, he continues to be an asshole, continues to call 
the rawhide kid a sissy boy and again this is all wrapped up pretty quickly because because rawhide is the fastest draw in the west and manages to take pike down without killing any of the hostages and we get sort of a turn on the repeating gag of Doc Holliday dragging Billy the Kid off panel to beat up, and that we get Doc Holliday dragging Rawhide's father off panel to beat him up, saying, I'm going to enjoy every moment of this. Like, there's basically, there's a bit where his dad admits that he's a good shot, but still just keeps calling him names. Yeah, he says... For a namby-pamby sissy boy, you're one hell of a shot. And then asks, you like making ugly face of girls yet? And So, uh, yeah, Holiday drags him off the way he's been dragging Billy the Kid off. Yeah, and it's pretty much a happy ending for everybody. The conflict is resolved. The rest of the seven ask Rawhide if he's going to try and develop a relationship with his father. And he's just like, maybe when I'm back from my trip. And just clearly still hates his guts. But yeah, just a nice little ending with everything wrapped up and Rawhide Kid shouting, Sensational Seven, let's ride as we end on a splash page of all the characters mounting their horses and riding off into the western sunset. Did you have, I guess, just any thoughts that you wanted to still cover anything we skipped over or, yeah, just any final notes before we wrap up? You know how we really loved Ghost Rider's Flaming Horse? Yeah. The horses on this back last page are just they're actually worse than the horses in the rest of the book. I don't know what happened. Maybe just like a time thing. That's fair, yeah. But like the horses have been fine. And then you look at the <laughs> That's it. That's like the last note I have. I'm just like, huh, what's up with this horse? The horses all looked pretty okay except for this one page where all of a sudden they have nostrils bigger than their eyes. Yeah, now that you pointed out these these are some quite bad horses on this last page, actually. And again, they look fine the rest of the book. And I thought that the Ghost Rider horse especially looked really cool. So I don't know what happened. I assume deadlines, yeah. Only thing I can think of, yeah, which like not gonna blame him for, but it is just like a weird thing. Like horses are a pain in the ass. There's a reason why we've made such a thing about horses on this podcast, and it's because, like, whenever they show up in a comic, you just feel bad for that artist. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's just, like, it's weird seeing the shift in the art here. Yeah. But, yeah, that was fun. This is this is Rawhide Kid that you're actually able to just read very easily. So if you're interested in Rawhide Kid, I would recommend this. Yeah. This is essentially the last of the modern rawhide kid stuff there's just this and the max series both by zimmerman and there hasn't been an actual rawhide kid series since then so i wanted to cover it you know obviously wanted to cover all of the accessible rawhide stuff that there is beyond this 
of what we haven't discussed. There's essentially just the standard like 60s, 70s OG series. And then there is a mini series from the 1980s. I would like to cover the 80s eventually, but it's not on Marvel Unlimited. So so if I'm ever able to get another set of hard copies to lend you for affordable enough, we may cover that eventually. Not sure if I'll ever have us cover the 60s or 70s stuff. It's just sort of like, just kind of is what you would expect standard Western comics of that time to be, you know, maybe at some point I'll have us pick a couple issues just to do it, to just sort of cover all bases of the character's history, but it largely just sort of is exactly what you would expect it to be. Apparently he does appear in one arc of Indestructible Hulk by Mark Wade, which is a time travel story. And the cover has Kid Colt, Rawhide Kid, and uh, Two-Gun Kid, and the Hulk riding a very feathery T-Rex. Well, that sounds like it has something for both of us, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, this this one, um, we, we may I may have to pick this at some point, just just because. Yeah, I'm I'm curious looking at this. A little rawhide kid, a little dinosaur, a little everything. I mean, it's not like an accurate T-Rex at all. <laughs> like, that's the funniest thing about it. <laughs> like, this thing does not have the right, like, skin texture at all, but it's like... It's a very unique design. Yeah. The mouth is also just all kinds of wrong. But, you know, that's... What What are you going to do? The artist is just drawing something cool. Yeah. But that's fun. I, I've read some of Indestructible Hulk, but I, ha- I don't think I've read this. I don't remember any time travel stuff. I haven't read any of it. But yeah, there's the old stuff. Oh, they've got... What's it, like, maybe about 20 issues with the old stuff on here? They don't have the Max series, which is so strange. Did yeah. they not reprint some of the Max series in one of the Pride specials? I don't believe they have. Like, they put a little, like, paragraph on it, and one of those had, like, a timeline of, like, gay Marvel history, so they, like, mentioned it, but I don't think that they've ever reprinted that book since, like, the trades in the early 2000s. As far as that the would be a hilarious timeline, because in terms of official stuff, it's just like that one North Star issue, the Rawhide Kid series, and then the Chuck Austin X Men. Once you get North Star getting allowed to say that he's gay again, I can't think of anything else that would be in that like time period. It was honestly pretty pitiful. It was like looking at the timeline page. I was like. I feel like at some point in putting this together, they could have had a moment to be like, we're making ourselves look bad. Maybe we should just scrap this part. I've never understood. Like, the the, the Pride specials make sense to me on the level of, like, doing the short stories with these characters and giving them all, like, making sure all these characters get seen every year, at least a bit. And, like, giving different creators the chance to write them than you're necessarily putting on your books for months on end but then they keep not upgrading the people who they have on some of these pride specials to doing full series with some of these characters 
which doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, why isn't Anthony Olvera writing a Young Avengers book, though? Like, clearly Marvel knows that people like these characters. You could throw, like, Ms. Marvel or Miles into it if you want to, like, get it to sell better. And then they'll do, like, stuff like the timeline thing or that really hilarious... Uh, prodigy summarizing like the gay history of the Marvel Universe and it's got like this really serious take on that panel of Northstar shouting I am gay and like the bit where he implies that they learned about trans people because there were some trans aliens in the Marvel Universe and you're like what is happening here? Who thought this was a good plan? Just do a book with some short stories about some of these characters and just do that. <laughs> Yeah. Stop trying to make it seem as though you've been like, this is a company that used to be run by Jim Shooter. You don't want to talk about your history. Yeah. It's like, I don't blame anyone working there now for that at all. But like, that's weird. It's a weird thing to do. Yeah. The move is more just to sort of not call attention to it. Um, with regards to the classic stuff on Marvel Unlimited, I think that it's the issues that they put in Marvel Masterworks because there's two volumes of Rawhide Kid Masterworks reprints. I think the stuff on Marvel Unlimited is just what they got as far into restoring for that and then that just cuts off after that point where they've never reprinted any more of it after that that makes sense until i get my omnibus maybe one day i think it's gonna happen eventually what what we need is like for westerns to come back and then marvel won't be able to stop printing these things yeah with that or, said again they should just do a new western book i i check it out i think that all of these characters are cool and have potential if you wanted to do stuff with them. Like, especially Red Wolf, Rawhide, and, like, a Western Ghost Rider. Like, there's stuff you could do with all of them. Yeah. In one of their now obligatory constant line relaunches, I would love to just see a Ghost Rider relaunch that just goes back to leaning into the Western shit. And there's so many immortal Marvel characters who you could have show up. Like, Rawhide Kid should meet Selene. God. Or Apocalypse, but Celine is funnier. With all that said, should I unveil the reading homework for next week? Yes, because it's your pick again, because I did two at the end of uh, Wet Hot Mutant Summer, so you got control of the podcast for two weeks. What have I got? Yeah. Um. So next week we are going to be discussing volume one of the Image comic series Snot Girl. Which, from my understanding, you know nothing about, and this will be a going in blind for you. Yeah, I've seen some pictures of the art, and I think the art looks a lot prettier than the name Snot Girl would imply. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, that'll be... Looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be another thing of me trying to do a little bit of different genre stuff where... It's not an action book, but is a sort of comedy drama slight thriller about a fashion blogger and 
it is a lot of fun. So look forward to that next week. Oh, the same guy who did Scott Pilgrim. Well, I've read some of Scott Pilgrim. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Brian Lee O'Malley and Leslie Hung. Yeah, like uh, someone else doing the art, but which isn't the case with Scott Pilgrim. But I've read stuff he's written. Okay. But yeah, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Excellent to each other.